issues in science and technology. We're a quarterly journal published in a partnership between the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine and Arizona State University. Um, we're really happy to be partnering also with Zocalo Public Square here today to present today's conversation, Can Innovation Really Solve Society's Problems? And joining me to explore and, uh, this question and to lay out a set of potential solutions is Dr. Arthi Prabhakar, who recently wrote an article on this subject published in our magazine called In the Realm of the Barely Feasible. So that will give you some sense of, of Arthi's level of ambition here. Uh, Artie's the founder and the CEO of a new nonprofit called Actuate that researches and demonstrates breakthrough solutions for society's challenges. We'll talk about that in some detail. She was previously the director of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, uh, between 2012 and 2017. And before that, the director of the National Institutes of Standards and Technology. So Artie, thank you so much. I have to genuinely say, uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because talking with you is always a stimulating pleasure. So thanks for being here. Thank you, Dan. It's, we, we always have an interesting conversation, so this will be fun. Thanks for having it me. It will indeed. And uh, I'm going to start with what might be obvious, but to me is a question I don't think I've ever asked you, but I just want to ask you now. So, um, you know, unless you've been living in a cave, you know what DARPA is. You've heard of DARPA. You've heard of it because it was largely responsible for the internet, uh, for stealth technologies, for rapid strike uh, technologies for uh, handheld GPS receivers and a bevy of other technologies that are really the infrastructure of, of today's world and, and economy in many ways. Um, and when you took over uh, in, in 2012, you had your own uh, set of technological challenges, things like, and I know this from listening to you talk about them, uh, um, things like uh, autonomous naval vessels, uh, rapid vaccine development, something we could talk more about today. Um, brain machine interfaces, uh, big social science questions like how collective identities form, um, and maybe um, most inevitably at all, of all, ray guns, uh, laser weapons. Um, so, so what I just want to know is, you know, how cool was it to be running DARPA? <laughs> well, that, that's the easiest question you could ask because it was incredibly cool. I had had the great opportunity to serve at DARPA as a young program manager starting in 1986. I was there for seven years and started an office in microelectronics. Um, and, and then I was gone for 19 years doing all kinds of other things not really related to national security. And when I got the chance to go back to DARPA, it was literally a dream come true. It was something I always thought would just be unbelievable to get to do that again. And, Is that a political um, appointment? It is, and, and uh, so I got the call in uh, the spring of 2012. And it's one of those rare instances where something that you think would be a dream to do actually turns out to be better than you imagined. And I, we had a great team. So don't be a, a careful. A mission I cared about. Yeah, well, in that case, yeah, don't be careful. It, it, it turned out to be uh, fantastic for, because all the, all the stars aligned and we got to work on things that I think in the fullness of time, I think we're going to find actually make a difference. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. So um, maybe this is an unfair question. What, what, what was the thing that you worked on at DARPA that was the most exciting to you that really seemed the most, uh, you know, potentially world changing in a way that made you feel good? The, when you work on a challenge as wide and complex as national security, it's, it's, I think it's impossible to pick just one. And so, you know, there were many, many things. 
It wasn't ray guns. I mean, you know, I think that's, unfortunately, I think for a lot of people, national security gets translated to deliver firepower on target. It turns out you actually do need to be able to deliver firepower on target, but national security is so very much more than that. And outthinking very complex adversaries who are always changing, thinking about what war fighting is and how it needs to shift to, to be far more effective and to be something that you know, you're so good at that you can deter any action. That's absolutely a huge part of it. And you mentioned some of the things that DARPA did in that area. A lot of that was about changing the, you know, we buy military systems so slowly and at such enormous cost to get these big complex platforms and aircraft or satellite that we cram everything onto. And it's just not a very effective way to operate in a world where the underlying technology is available to everyone and is changing rapidly. So a complete systems rethink about how to make our systems architectures much more fluid and powerful and flexible what was a major theme in some of the things that we were doing. Yeah. And then in areas that were very far from delivering firepower on target, we were working on the frontiers of biological technologies everything from outpacing infectious disease, which these days seems like an obvious thing to have worked on at that time was not did, so much. Did, did, did any of the work that you did on that when you were at DARPA uh, uh, feed into the what actually is an impressively rapid vaccine development process? Um, yeah, absolutely. When I arrived at DARPA in 2012, one of my amazing program managers, a, a PhD geneticist and MD who was also an Air Force Colonel, said 1918 is going to happen again and we're not ready and we, you know the speed at which we deliver that we develop vaccines is not going to be able to address the, this kind of calamitous situation and um, classic systems problem there's so many things you have to do to understand what the what the new pathogen is how antibodies are effective against it what kinds of vaccines would work all of that work um, was started in a time when you know, we were dealing with Zika and chikungunya and Ebola, which were serious infectious diseases, but not the kind of pandemic that we're in today. And all of those turned out to be trial runs for what we're dealing with yeah. now. So Moderna came directly, out, their RNA vaccine work uh, is directly out of that program and, uh, and a lot of the antibody work as well. So it was, you know, it was crazy when we were doing it and now it is yeah. being proven to be, I, I think a platform that's gonna be critical. And as, as impressively fast as I was, I think it, you know we still have reason to feel like we were caught a bit flat-footed when we shouldn't have been. So, yeah, and I mean, I think you know it's it's sort of a classic situation, right? We we have outperformed on the biomedicine side yeah. of dealing with this pandemic, and we have completely been disastrous on the public health side of dealing with the All pandemic. Right. So, so that's the perfect setup that. for, for that's the perfect setup for moving to really what the main topic of the discussion that I want to have with you today is. And, and so, so you made a really, um, I'd say, profound transition in the types of problems that you're working on. You went from, you know, the leading defense, military, uh, national security innovator in history um, to uh, a completely different focus um, on a set of uh, profoundly challenging societal problems. So I guess the first question I want to ask you is, is um, sort of what led you to, to even decide to do that? That's a pretty audacious shift in and of itself. I was wrapping up at DARPA. It was 2016. I was getting close to the end of my term. 
And I, uh, we were going to move home to Palo Alto and I, it was a perfect time to really step back and think about what I wanted to do next. I loved having seen how innovation works from very different vantage points, uh, DARPA for a number of years, but also leading NIST during the Clinton administration, very, a radically different, critically important part of federal innovation. Uh, and then in my private sector life, most of that was venture capital here in Silicon Valley. So I certainly hadn't seen the whole US innovation system, but I, I had seen it from enough perspectives to get, um, to really have a vantage point on it. I, and I loved having that. The thing, I, I, on the one hand, I was so happy to have participated in this system that is phenomenally effective. And I also, you know, I was thinking about all the problems that we're very good at innovating for. And then I was looking to the future and thinking about the problems that we have that are going to make or break us as a society. <clears throat> and it seemed to me that there was a very big mismatch that what our innovation system is very good at doing, national security, biomedicine, basic research at universities, information technology. That's what the half a trillion dollars a year of R&D in the US is just cranking at. Uh, and, you know, there are many issues, lots of people who are always working to make that work better. But, and none of those problems or challenges have gone away. It's all stuff that needs to happen. But what does that have to do with the problems that we weren't innovating for, like access to opportunity or public health or the, all the dark issues that come with the, with the glamour and wonders of the information revolution yep. from trust to privacy? two issues like climate change, the, the, the you know, massive number of issues that are going to determine how our story turns out. And uh, innovation isn't going to single-handedly solve any of those, but it's hard to see how we're going to succeed at those challenges without innovating, without breaking out of the patterns. We're and there's a sort so of- that, That's what was driving me crazy. You know, I had to go think about that because it, it just kept tugging at me. And there's a, there's a, um... I wouldn't call this an irony because I think it's an observation that's been common, commonly made, but, but um, obviously our, our national security in some large sense um, uh, is I, at, at this point seems to be much more under threat from these internal problems than from our uh, external ad adversaries. Um, and, uh, and yet, as you say, um, we seem to not include them in the same um, uh, set of problems that we see as targeted for uh, solutions through innovation. I think there's lots of reasons for that, but what's really um, amazing about your approach is, is you're having none of that. You're not, you're, you're basically saying, look, you know, um, yeah, these other problems might be hard, but that doesn't mean that they're, uh, that they're problems that can't be productively addressed through the same types of approaches that we've used to address things like biomedicine and, and national defense. So what I want to know is, how did you get to that? Because in some ways, that's not only controversial, but some people would have a problem with that. They'd say you're searching for a technological fix uh, for something that's really a social problem. So what, what was your, what's your thinking around, around how you can get away with this and, and how, it will, will, how it will actually work? So number one, I think it's important to be clear that um, all of human history is dealing with very, very hard problems. And the ones where we have made progress is where we, we identify the problem, but where we actually have new insights, new research, new innovations 
that allow us to do something about it. And so not every problem has, is, um, is going to be amenable exactly. to innovation. Uh, what, I, what I think is, you know, I do think it's plausible though to imagine that if, if our current innovation system traces back to the Neva Bush in 1945, I think it's not crazy to imagine that we may have made some progress that could help us solve problems that we didn't think were solvable in 1945. And so, so lots of things have to happen, I think, for this massive shift that I would love to see happen over a generation in innovation. One is to couple the, 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 the new capabilities coming out of research when you talk about what some of them are, but they all have to do with better understanding and influencing deeply complex, including deeply complex social systems. That needs to be coupled and aimed at these massive societal challenges that we have. And I, and I think those, those, you know, once you know what problems you're trying to solve and you have some sense of the tools that you can now bring to it, um, it it's research, it's far from certain, but you, you can see that there might be opportunity and that's where we want to go. What, what I think you can draw and that we're gonna try to bring from uh, the lessons we've seen in the current innovation system is not necessarily um, specific tools and technologies, but more uh, a thought process, a methodology, uh, an approach to managing innovation that can open up new horizons. And so, I mean, the art of this, the work that we're trying to do, I think, is really to go to the core of what makes, for example, what is what makes a DARPA tick and be very, very effective at doing the piece that it does in innovation today how can we extract those elements and then re-vector them to these new classes of hard problems that we want to now go so back Before we get to that, can we talk just a little bit about, about complex problems and what makes yeah. them different? Um, uh, because, um, uh, so there's a wonderful book, I don't know if you're familiar with it, from the early 70s called The Moon in the Ghetto. Uh, oh, by, yes, by uh, the economist Dick Nelson, a particular hero of mine. Um, and it's really about, you know, why we could go to the moon, but we couldn't solve poverty. Um, no. And and what he, he lays out is the essential difference in these types of problems. Yes, going to the moon was hard, but it was largely an engineering problem. It could be subjected to to the laws of nature that physics that we've known in physics, you know, plus a little uh, uh, some creative engineering and some good luck and so on. Um, but but problems that implicate human behavior and communities and and culture uh, are are much different. And we don't really know how to intervene in them su successfully. And that that's not just the problem of poverty, but it would also apply to climate change and public health and lots of other things. Yeah. So so um, it sounds like you're saying um, that actually we've progressed since the early 70s so that some of these things that looked intractable um, are now becoming tractable. A and little what, bit, a little bit of change, right? I mean, I, I think you have to be very, very clear that we're not, I, I really don't wanna be saying that we now have some new magic technology or solution. We're going to wave a magic wand. Yeah, you're clearly not disappear. Yeah. But I, what I think is key is that the little bit of progress that we have made in understanding and influencing those kinds of complex systems can have enormous consequences if we actually learn how to harness that new understanding 
in a more effective way. And so I'm not, you know, I think Dick Nelson would still say the same thing today about the moon and the ghetto. And, and I think even if we are fully successful, that problem will still remain. I mean, we're trying to work on some of the things that are the deepest, hardest problems throughout human history. So they're not gonna go away overnight. The question is, can we do better than we are doing today and be more effective? I think we can, and that's, that's the boundary that I want yeah. to see us shift. So I'd like you to talk a little more about that because to mm -hmm. me that's re that's really interesting, right? Because I think I think the intuition that that Nelson had and developed, which is one I strongly um, uh, kind of ad ad align myself with, is that is that in many ways these systems, like say uh, uh, urban economic and cultural systems in America embedded in our larger industrial um, uh, and post-industrial economy are so complicated that it's very hard to know how to intervene in them to come up to. And, and, um, and what you're saying is that we're, I think, right, is that we're now able to learn things about those systems that allow us to intervene maybe in particular ways um, uh, and to understand those systems in ways that we couldn't in the past. So what what's, a lot, what's changed that's getting us to the point where you now feel um, hopeful about that? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, let, let, me, let me start with not with the new research because I think there, there is very interesting new research. I wanna start by reformulating how we think about the purposes of innovation because I think uh, in, certainly in the post-World War II era, uh, uh, the canonical notion is research begins and some magic happens and it matures and ultimately it is expressed as a product or a service and it's delivered through the market. And, and so much of our language about R&D is even structured around R&D for productivity or for new products and services. Number one, yeah, that's good. That's essential. Number two, I think we need for, for the class of problems we're now talking about, we also need to think about research that leads, if you think about research leading to new solutions that ultimately are implemented and scaled. I wanna open our thinking now and not just think about the market bringing products and services to market for the implement, implementation scale, but also thinking about changes in practices and changes in policy, because that's what it's gonna to take to change these very deeply human systems that we're talking about now. And it, so if you start with that conceptualization that the purpose of research and innovation is not just to introduce new products and services, but to also implement new practices and policies, and that all of that together is what's ultimately going to take innovative new advances and, and implement them at a scale that ultimately achieves the change that you want. I think that's a, a, an important starting point. Can I, can I just um, explore that a little bit more with you? Because sure. of course, um, I mean, two things. One is the, the, the justification, of course, for the the um, 120 some odd billion dollar federal investment in, in uh, R&D, uh, in research and development, it has always been uh, the public good outcomes of, of that work as expressed through either biomedicine or national defense or environmental protection or, or whatever. And, and you know, many agencies, uh, the so-called mission agencies of the government actually are not driven purely by market uh, forces or commercialization. They, they do things that are specifically aimed at solving social problems, but they're still not addressed. They're, they're, they're doing something different than what you have in mind. So can you, can you yeah. put a finer oh, point on the difference here? 
I, I would actually say that the vast majority, so of, of the public funds that we spend on R&D, federal funding of R&D, a slice of it, NSF and a bunch of NIH, really its purpose is simply to produce new knowledge. And, and a little so, of DOE, yeah, right. Actually, rather a lot of DOE. Yeah. A lot of that, the, the end result is publishing papers, important, that's that, that piece. Uh, the vast majority of the rest of the funding ends up you know, success looks like a product or service that's delivered, right? Even in the national security apparatus, a lot of it ends up being uh, military systems that are built. So they're, they're, it's not a market-driven product, but it's a, it's a public product, but it's still a, a physical thing that you go build or a service that might be provided. And, and built by a corporation too, should be said. Yeah, and absolutely. And similarly, even for biomedicine, right? I mean, we think of the, the delivery of that is through pharmaceutical companies largely. So, so I think we still have this sort of product uh, notion, this market, the market will bring a product or service to market. Uh, that's still sort of the core idea. Absolutely, we, we have research that informs regulations, and I, I, I think that's a part of what we do, but I think we're going to, for the, if we're going to go after these societal challenges, that needs to be much more integral to the thinking. Uh, and in fact, I think the move to more evidence-informed policymaking is one of the encouraging signs that I'm seeing. And, and I, maybe let's use that to tie back to, boy, what do we actually know how to do that's better than what we used to know how to do? And I think there are several things that are going on there. They're all, one way or the other, they're all about the information revolution and they're about, again, understanding and influencing complex systems. And I think of it in three pieces. One is the, the revolution we're all talking about, which is the data revolution. There's more of it from more sources and we have more and better tools to combine data and get insights. It's this, you know, I just think of it as this, it's the fountain of correlations. It's the never ending fountain of correlations. And you want to be better very or clear. For worse, right? You want to be very clear that it's only correlations and, but it's, it's very, very, very rich. Uh, there's another piece that I don't think we, I think we don't yet have as clear a view on, but it is about um, un really grappling with the complexity of systems and understanding causal relationships in a better way. There are many different elements of that from statistics to, many, to, to simulation and modeling, but that capacity I think is growing in, in some important ways. And then the third piece for some of the problems that we're gonna try to tackle in this world one often you need to personalize and tailor uh, the delivery of a service or an intervention for an individual. And now we all, you know, we're all carrying these things around, right? So th this is a vehicle for delivering very personalized uh, uh, services or interventions uh, to billions of people, not just hundreds of millions around the country. But I, th that becomes another piece of the puzzle. So, you know, these are very interesting building blocks. And um, th that's, those are some of the reasons that I think you can ask some of these perennially hard questions in a fresh way. And it's the, 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 I'm just interested in the, the kind of personalized, the third element of this. So, so that, that there's two aspects of that. One, right, is, is the data you can gather um, yeah. from individuals and that's its own sort of double-edged sword, right? You got it. <laughs> Uh, and then the, the second, of course, is then how you can speak to people via uh, personalized apps and, and it, to, to reinforce uh, certain patterns of behavior, again, for better or for worse. So absolutely. So, um, so it but but what you're saying, and this is super interesting, is that this is an intervention point that never existed before. Right. And if you combine that with an increased ability to actually understand 
in a predictive way, would you say, that the behavior of complex systems, at least portions of them? You can um, always aspire to that. You're yeah. not going to be able to predict the full behavior of large complex systems. But you know, yeah. you, you, can, you can start developing insights and hypotheses. You can take action. And then as you take action, you can track and see what's happening in closer to real time and in a more fine-grained way because of our data capabilities. So again, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, the, the curtain is not falling down and not, not, it's not like everything's possible no, but it's, overnight. But, but it is a, it is a radical, even if, I mean, I, I think your, your modesty about the ambitions is, is both admirable and understandable, but it, but, but I want to, um, uh, there's also an audaciousness because it really is requiring a change. It's, 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 it's going you know the, the 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 dichotomy that Nelson set out. You are trying to break that down, and as, as I think you've written, shift the the boundary between the, the the feasible and the infeasible a little bit more in the direction of what used to be infeasible. So so let's um, yeah, try absolutely. to get a little specific uh, 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 about that. First of all, you've you've created this this cool new nonprofit actuate. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about why you called it that. Maybe it's self evident. Um, and you've, uh, you've also um, identified four key areas uh, that you're going to focus on. Um, and uh, we've mentioned a couple of them. We can go into them um, in more detail. But I want to I just start with one because I think it's, it, it would be useful to be a little specific. Um, so, so it's about uh, data you can trust, right? That's one of your four priorities. So how did you choose that? And in a time when... Um, uh, when there is infinite garbage out there, very difficult to distinguish what's real from what isn't, where we can talk about political polarization or what people believe in or vaccines yeah. and vaccine rejection and all this other stuff. Um, tell me how you're, where, what's your entry point into that? Because in some sense, that seems like the foundation of it all. Yeah. Uh, so this particular area is, first of all, deeply informed by my co-founder, Wade Shen. He was a program manager at DARPA, which is how we met. He's a data science and AI expert, which means he has gotten to work on an amazing array of interesting problems. But he is very deeply familiar with a lot of these um, trust and privacy issues. And, you know, the starting point for us is to say, is to just recognize that we are in the middle of this information revolution that is going on. A few years ago, we talked about it as if it was the solution to every problem. Today, we tend to talk about it as if it is the source of every problem. And of course, the truth lies, maybe not in the middle, but the truth is both of those, because we are getting the phenomenal fruits of this revolution. It's changing every aspect of society. In, in, in some very, very constructive ways from productivity to connectivity. Uh, and we also now, I think, are getting more and more clear that, that the cost to date has also been some very damaging erosion of privacy and some fundamental problems with trust that, that can affect democracy in some very dangerous ways. So, you know, our starting point is to think about this as how do you mitigate the downside, the dark side of the information revolution, and help Remember how this all started as a utopian dream about yep. what, would, what was going to be possible if people were empowered? Yes, we were going to have one global culture of mutual understanding. Oops. Right. Well, yeah, right. Exactly. But, you know, like, let's not give up on that. Let's, right. I, how do we enable yep. that and mitigate the downside? So now this is not an area where there is, uh, where no one else has thought to do R&D in this area. I mean, a vast quantity of R&D uh, funding is spent by industry and by government. 
on the problems of information technology from cybersecurity to you know, so many different aspects. The thing that we felt was really missing though in that mix is corporations spend that money to protect themselves and to deliver new products and services and to grow, good for them. Governments care about cybersecurity, protecting themselves. Who, what, what I think is really missing is, is sufficient attention to the rights and the privileges of the individual in this information uh, revolution that we're going through. So lots, even that has lots of different aspects. One of the places that we chose to start because a founding hypothesis for everything that we're doing is the idea that data, that combining multiple data sets of information is going to lead to insights upon which we can act to start making these advances that we hope to see. Uh, that really requires being able to solve or, or at least put a dent in this very difficult trade-off that exists right now between the richness of data and privacy. If you think about it, you know, the most valuable data in the world is about human beings. And that also means it's the most dangerous data in yeah. the world. And in the, in the commercial sector, I think we have very rich utilization of private information and, and some concerns about where that is going. We're actually starting on the other side of the equation, which is if you think about administrative data, tax records, educational data, healthcare data, census data, that we know how much uh, insight can be gleaned, the vast amount of insight that can be gleaned from that to really understand the factors that affect opportunity and health. But in fact, with very few exceptions, people are, people are really not able to get at and combine those data sets because of the rigorous privacy protections that are in place. Thank goodness they're in place. Um, but we think that it's important to figure out how to deal with that issue of getting access to that data while preserving privacy. And this is an area where there is some very interesting research from um, applied math and cryptography um, techniques like the ability to compute on encrypted data, the ability to track through differential privacy means, but the, the privacy leakage that occurs uh, when you output data analyses. And those are techniques that are being used one off, but that's an example of an area where at actually we've formulated a program that we think could really uh, develop, demonstrate and, and show what a new data architecture that would allow for the uh, highly protected, uh, but what, what we want is a place where you can put many, many, many kinds of very rich data sets in a way that completely protects privacy, but allows for research and policy making to, to get- So in theory, it could data. take advantage of all the personalized sources of information without those being trackable back to the people. Absolutely. So, and, and how did, but you also have trust in information as part of this theme. How does this connect to the, to the trust issue, which obviously yeah. is really, really critical right now? I think, you know, for any of these focus areas that we're tackling at Actuate, we start with a broad societal challenge and some, some set of hypotheses about the kinds of techniques that could be useful in advancing solutions. But then it, when, when you get to what are you actually gonna do, you have to get quite specific. And the example I gave you is one, one that is particularly aimed at the data and privacy issue with data sets. I think there will be, for each of our focus areas, we imagine portfolios of programs, uh, a very different example of a problem that might uh, be fruitfully tackled is, uh, I mean, one that we are all living through right now is the disinformation and misinformation yep. problem on social media platforms. Um, there, I mean, there's so many dimensions to this, but when you peel all the layers back, 
at, at the very core is the problem that the, the only way to disrupt massive disinformation and misinformation campaigns and social media is in direct conflict with the business model of the social media platforms. And figuring out how to practically come up with solutions that manage around that um, huge yeah. challenge, yeah. but there are some very interesting ideas. So that that would be fertile ground for yeah. other kinds okay. of programs. So you just haven't done that one yet. So no, no, I mean, and just to be clear, yeah. we're, we're you're absolutely right. Our ambitions are vast, but we are still at a seed stage. Yeah, you're going to solve. You're, yeah. these so you're only going to solve the privacy problem, and then it'll turn to the trust problem. Okay. Yeah, one thing but, at a time, Dan. Yeah, Come right. On. So, so, but let's let's talk a little bit too about about the model of actually the the work model you have here, which you're calling you're calling solutions R and D and I take it you've um, exported that model from uh, from DARPA. So can you just talk a little bit about, so what does that mean um, for how you're going to think about, let's continue with a specific example, this, this you know, protecting the privacy of, of, of personalized data. And, and, um, and how does, how does that model differ from the way we typically, you know, apply R&D to problem solving? Yeah, it, Solutions R&D is um, this thing that lives downstream from basic research that results in new understanding and the publication of papers, but it lives upstream from product development, policy implementation, all the stuff that, that it takes to actually implement and then fully scale the results of innovation. The, the street, just for those who don't know the metaphor, the, the stream being some actual purportedly, but not really, um, flow that ends up with something that people can use, right? So right, downstream right. Is, where, mean, is where it's being used. Absolutely right. And, and I, you know, the, the, the vastly oversimplified model is there's the aha moment in the lab in research and then miracles happen and then products come out the other end and that's how, that's how impact comes from research. It's far more fluid and interactive. It has to be to be effective. Um, but there is certainly a sense that there, there are stages of maturity the, the reason we chose to focus on solutions R&D, first of all, the only reason you do R&D is because you don't have solutions that you can implement that solve the problem today, right? I mean, that's, that's other than just wanting to have new knowledge, that's the reason to do any kind of R&D. Well, it's a, public, it's a public reason. I would say that, we, that, that there might be private reasons to simply do it just to have a copycat drug or something like that, right? So I don't um, think yeah, but you're doing that for, I mean, you're doing that because you don't, you, the only reason you're doing it in public or private settings is because you don't already know the answer, right? No, you you need to blow open a new horizon. Or you wouldn't sort. call it research. You wouldn't call it research. But the reason we chose solutions R&D in particular is that we think that is a very important leverage point. Well, we're trying, you know, the big vision that we have is that an entire new ecosystem that's ancillary to, in addition to what we already do in R&D, we want to see this entire new ecosystem ratchet up. And we think that we will need very important new basic research. We're going to need a lot more kinds of implementation and implementation at greater scale. Solutions R&D is this thing that lives in the middle. And I think it's a great leverage point because once you have some research and you have some means of implementing, you want to start ratcheting this whole system yes. up. And I think that's the lever, we think that's a very powerful leverage point from where we do it. And I want to fo focus in on that because I, it, it seems in, to me bizarrely neglected in the way we talk about um, uh, R&D. I think the, the, the the, the phrase you use is, is changing minds by showing what's possible, right? Yeah. So, and um, can you talk a little bit more about this and how that works 
for DARPA because of course a lot of what DARPA does are things that people would have initially thought weren't possible. But, but um, what's interesting to me is why hasn't that approach to things proliferated across the R&D enterprise? Um, why aren't we, it's, again, there's a place for all sorts of different types of research and development, yes. but you would think that, that, that what you call solutions R&D or, or a DARPA-like approach ought to be uh, something that we have already adapted for problems like public health or education. So what's the obstacle to this? Why, yeah. why, why aren't we all doing it? Yeah, no, I mean, I, th I, I actually do think that even for the current set of societal problems that US R&D is focused on, I think solutions R&D is relatively weak in the US. It's where DARPA lives, but DARPA is a very tiny part. As you know, uh, I agree, uh, but, uh, and I mean, it seems like there's cultural barriers. I think there are absolutely cultural reasons for that. I mean, you know, go back, you know, Dan, your paper that you wrote, um, I don't, it must've been about 2015 or 2016 about Vannevar Bush yep. and his focus on curiosity driven research uh, was, was actually a lot of what got me thinking about all of this and helped me formulate my thoughts. And, and I, but, I wish I had called it solutions R&D, but I wasn't eloquent enough to come up with it. But that's exactly well, what I was going after, you know. Um, yeah, no, I think I think we're, we were both heading in the same direction. I think, I mean, first of all, the way people tell their Vannevar Bush stories is very interesting. Mm -hmm. People who do basic research uh, point let me to just, the let me just do a uh, Let me just do a little sidebar here. Vannevar okay. Bush was um, yeah, President Roosevelt's <laughs> science advisor during World War II. He ran the Office of Scientific Research and Development, which brought us things like radar, proximity fuses, and ultimately the Manhattan Project and the, and the exactly. bomb. He then wrote the foundational mm -hmm. document for science policy at the end of the war called Science the Endless Frontier. So, so we, we refer, those of us who are in this wonky area refer to it in this sort of biblical way, but like the Bible, it it attracts many different interpretations uh, and many different um, uses. So, well, and, and carry on. That's the exact right intro about Vannevar Bush because I find it as a Rorschach test uh, about which Bush people think yes. of when they think about okay. Vannevar Bush. Most people in basic research point to the endless frontier of Vannevar Bush. The war is ending. We, we're actually going to win. And now he is laying out. What I think he was doing in 1945 was saying, it's time for a portfolio adjustment. Until now, we've depended on Europe for basic research by and large, but guess what? They're in rubble. We're gonna to have to build our own basic research foundation and we need this stuff that he called, you know, for better and for worse, curiosity-driven research. So I think people who live in basic research point to that as the stone tablets, that's the gospel. What, what I actually, so I thought that was a very important portfolio adjustment of 1945. I think 75 years later, you've got to look at the portfolio again. And I would actually argue that solutions R&D is the portfolio adjustment that we now need. And, and as because of that, or perhaps the other way around, the Vannevar Bush story that I love is what he did during World War II, which was to pull together right. basic research, universities that were locked in their ivory towers, and he paired them with this existential threat of the Second World War. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine a greater crisis 
than that. And, and the, but the work that got done that led to radar proximity fuses and then the Manhattan Project was the direct coupling of what was coming out yeah. of research with solutions that had to be created no, right now. I totally love, love that. that. In right? a way, it's in a way it's revisionist history, but I think it's exactly right that 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 that's the real lesson of of Bush's role in in the war. Um, but somehow that's not the dominant interpretation. But anyway, you're gonna you are. Yeah, but that's I think that's the one that's actually quite pertinent uh, for yeah. what we're trying to do now. Because Me because too. I think you know the problems we want to tackle are the crises of today. They aren't World War II, yeah. but I think that they will have equally devastating consequences if we don't deal with them. And it is the synthesis of research and turning it into really powerful solutions, demonstrating that. That's what solutions R and D has to be about. But it also means then that again, this is the combination of kind of audacity and, and humility that you um, communicate that that actually can't do this by itself. Oh, it's going to have to yeah, be system wide evolution, right? So how's that going to how's that? Gonna yeah, happen? I, I mean, you know, I you just have to start. And let's back up for a minute. I mean, if you think about what we're talking about, the the future that I want to see is public sector innovation that leads to far more effective and more efficient policies in many, many different areas. I want to see the market innovating in new ways that lead to better solutions for many of these problems through products and services. And so what, you know, ultimately what you want to see is massive shifts. And what, what I think it will look like is both billions of dollars being spent in fresh ways, funding different kinds of research basic research solutions, R&D, and then implementation, new ways to think about policy making, think about the evidence-based policy movement that's just starting. That could be the beginning of, I think, a very important set of shifts. So if that's what you wanna see happen, well, first of all, I think today it's very hard for the market to initiate this because it's not tied directly to products and profits. And it's also quite difficult, although I think the Biden administration, I hope will make make some starts towards this. But generally speaking, it's very hard for the federal government to start this because we have this 130 or $140 billion a year of federal R&D spending, but it's not one pool that someone is managing. It's, you know, 70 billion that the Defense Department decides it needs. And, and Plus the, the institutions all have their own cultures and way of behaving and and DARPA and remains relatively re unique and mission, yeah. Right, right, and so, so, and and by the way, I mean, while of course, if I were czar, I would shift some of that around. I'm, no, no one actually is the czar and can shift that. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I am saying it's going after missions that still matter enormously, right? So you don't actually want to like uproot that and do this other thing. So I don't think it can start very effectively from the market or from government, and that's why I think this is a moment where philanthropy can play a pivotal role. And that that's that's why we started in the social. And does this get to your your changing minds by showing what's possible idea? Yeah. In other words, if you can have a, a couple of uh, I don't know, do you play do you know baseball? A couple of ground rule doubles, if not home runs. Um, yeah, shoot, we're uh, always going for the home runs, but yeah, right. you, you know what happens, right? Yeah. All the other things happen too. Yeah, and I so the way I think about it is I want to build actuate to go run a series of these programs in these various societal challenge areas. And for each one, I want that program to show a, a much better way of doing something that sparks change in that area. It might spark change in how you do data and privacy. It might spark change in how you scale climate solutions. And I want the actuate, the whole of actuate to become a prototype for how you do solutions R&D for these kinds of societal challenges so that it sparks 
the change in how we do R&D as well. Well, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a really powerful to me, extremely appealing um, model. And, and uh, um, the, I guess the question is how you create a set of apostles who can go out and help it, uh, help, help it, um, uh, pro propagate through through a com yeah. its own complex system, the innovation system. Um, we're about out of time, but I want to end on a, a with a, a, a more kind of philosophical question because one thing that really strikes more me more philosophical yeah, than everything more, we just even said. more. Oh um, okay. uh, well, just I'm really struck and impressed um, by how you hold. I mean, uh, hold in your head and in your way of thinking about things both the incredible. Um, opportunity and potential for technology to do good, but also what we all know are the the possible downsides and your yeah. discussion of the internet and, and and social media and its effects on democracy are an example of that. Um, do you have thoughts about what what can what, what can we do to to make sure the balance is tipped in the right direction? You know, no utopian or dystopian uh, uh, fantasies here, but what's the how do we need to think differently to try to make sure that the balance goes in the right direction? I'm going to give you the last word and then I'll, I'll sign off here. This was something I thought a lot about in my DARPA role, and I think that it translates to what we're working on now as well. At DARPA, my view was if, if your day job is to try to spark powerful new technologies, you have to just get on the table the fact that every powerful technology in human history has been used for good and for ill. And all of us who get to do these things in R&D, we are doing this because we believe that over time, our contributions are gonna lift us up. And it, you know, that's, that's the joy of it, right? I mean, that's really the great privilege of the work that we do. What I found at DARPA is when I started talking about these issues and started inviting the program managers to think about all the implications of their technologies, which you can't fully predict, but you could certainly speculate about and, and use that to inform what you do now, use it to inform how you talk to users. Uh, what I found was, uh, I wondered how it would be received, right? Because every, the DNA of that organization is let's go do these big, powerful new technologies. It turned out it was some of the most meaningful conversations I had with people in my building because if you're working on these technologies, you know, you know what a big deal these issues are and getting it on the table and, and giving people the opportunity to really weigh ethical considerations, uh, to have these broader conversations, um, I, I actually think ended up being uh, a, a very important contribution to the culture of that organization. And so that's, that's very much how we're thinking about it here. I really well. love it. It's basically and tell me if this is right. It's how do you build a capacity to reflect on the enterprise as the enterprise evolves rather than just let's do it and see what happens. I, I think that may be the best we can do. So so on, on yeah. that note, um, uh, I could go on for an hour. You probably couldn't and the audience certainly couldn't, but it's really been fantastic as always talking to you. Um, so thanks so much. Uh, good luck with Actuate. Um, it's an incredibly ambitious, beautiful idea. Uh, to everyone watching, thanks for joining us. Um, you can visit uh, Zocalo's website, zocalopublicsquare.org, to read a summary of the talk um, and uh, see other essays and other um, examples and articles of conversations like the one Artie and I just had. Uh, I also have to plug uh, our magazine website, which is uh, issues.org, very simple, for issues in science and technology. You can find Artie's full article there as well, again, as other uh, articles on the same set of subjects and many more. So thanks again to everybody for listening to us. Um, have a great rest of your day. Stay safe, be well, take care, so long. <laughs>